Good morning, everyone. We've had a, a series of sermons you might not have even noticed, uh, but uh, on the five discourses in Matthew's Gospel from the faculty. How many of you realise that's what was happening? Well, there you go. I underestimated you again. <laughs> um, each of them ends, I noticed, in pre preparing for today with uh, the words, when Jesus had finished speaking. So it's interesting. It's a, quite a deliberate device through the Ma uh, Matthew's Gospel, having these discourses and signalling them to the reader. And I've got the task of uh, preaching from Matthew 25, the fifth discourse. So today, I'm, uh, as you've heard, we're looking at the parable of the ten vir vir virgins. Tomorrow, we'll look at the parable of the talents. And then I'm going to break slightly with the pattern and go to the end of Matthew's Gospel for the Great Commission, which kind of works, doesn't it, for the last day for some of you. Today's passage is about a wedding. Uh, on my current count, I've been to weddings in six countries. Um, Australia, the US, England, Scotland, France and Switzerland. And I've conducted two weddings and a funeral, in case you like uh, incomplete allusions to movie titles. <laughs> Certainly, weddings differ from culture to culture. So the weddings I've attended have varied in length from two hours to 24 hours. Uh, most um, had uh, rather awkward dances at some point. Um, many of them had great big banquets. One just had finger food. Uh, I still salivate at the memory of the one in France, uh, which went all night and the food kept coming. Anyway, um, <laughs> some of them were in the morning, some of them were at uh, an early afternoon, some of them started in the evening. Uh, my favourite two weddings were those in Switzerland, so I met two new friends when I studied in Texas and then I lived in the UK and they got married and invited me, so I went across to Switzerland, uh, which was a, a great privilege, of course. Uh, both of them went for 24 hours. Uh, long weddings there, they know how to celebrate. Um, on a bus, on a boat, my own hotel room, fireworks, this is not a joke, at one of the weddings, every guest gave a speech. <laughs> every guest. Uh, my favourite uh, kind of moment at one of the weddings, you were driving along the bus, they hand out bits of paper and a balloon, and you wrote down your favourite food. You brought up the balloon, put the bit of paper in the balloon, the bus stopped, we got out, we nailed our balloon to a barn, and the wedding couple threw three darts at the wall. If they hit yours, they had to give you that meal that in, that, in that year at their place. Unfortunately, they missed mine, which was a bit disappointing. Now, um, however, having said that, notwithstanding the big cultural differences that there are between weddings, and that's obviously the case, uh, several things are common to most, if not all, weddings. There's a bride and a groom, have a wedding party of some kind, uh, bridesmaids, grooms, uh, groomsmen, best, best man, etc. Uh, you have receptions and eating. Uh, it's a great honour to be invited and it's an even greater honour to be part of the wedding party, um, although there's some pressure in that role, isn't there? And uh, um, it, it's a really, it's a high time in, in life and, and Reese will probably cringe at this, but the German word for wedding is Hochzeit, and which means high time. So just a bit of etym etymological fallacy there for you. So it's a, it's weddings are high times. And uh, there's major pressure, as I said, to make it go well. I don't know if you realise uh, there's something called the wedding premium 
You heard about that? So if you go to a reception centre and say it's a wedding, <laughs> up goes the price without before you even blink. And uh, wedding photographers, in my view, are the bravest people on earth because if they mess up, there's, uh, whew, there's a lot of pressure. Now, the wedding in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 draws on a lot of these universal features and they're quite important to kind of come along with us as we read the passage. But it also has some features, let's uh, be honest, that are quite foreign to us. Uh, look at the second half of verse 1. There are 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. There haven't been any weddings where there were 10 virgins uh, and oil and lamps. Uh, so that's, that's distinctive to a Palestinian wedding in the first century. Uh, it was customary apparently for virgins, young single women of marriageable age, probably closely aligning to our bridesmaids, to form a welcoming processional. So basically the newly married couple after dark went from the bride's home to the bridegroom's home for a big celebration, the, the reception, and this enormous honour was given these ten virgins to light the way, this uh, procession, uh, as they moved along uh, to the celebration. So what does Jesus do with this wedding, uh, with this parable about a wedding procession? Verse 1a, the first half says, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like. So you've got a figure of comparison, uh, an extended metaphor, uh, telling us something about God's active kingly rule. And uh, um, Jesus compares uh, some aspect of uh, the kingdom of God to the ten virgins and their important task of welcoming the bridegroom. So he uses this parable to teach us something about the kingdom and our lives uh, waiting for Jesus to return. And that's really the theme of today and tomorrow. How do we wait? What are we meant to be doing in the meantime? So what is this parable teaching us? How do we interpret a parable? Um, uh, my own trusty definition, the first years will know it off by heart, is that a metaphor uses a familiar image, so this isn't that familiar to us, but it was to the original hearers, to say something, it teaches something literal, but it's better than saying something literal because it says it with feeling memorably. Uh, a metaphor uses a familiar image to say something memorably with feeling. And uh, the affective impact of the metaphor, the, the feeling evoked, is something we've got to pick up on when reading a metaphor, and hopefully it's, it's more memorable at least for those of us who have uh, not strictly semantic uh, intelligence, those of us who are a bit more visual. Now, before we consider the parable, it's interesting to think about the familiar image, the comparison of the wedding to something spiritual. So in the Old Testament, as you'll know, God is compared to a husband of his people, and Matthew builds on this idea. So back in chapter 9, we have Jesus as a bridegroom, quite explicitly, where it says, uh, uh, Jesus asks, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? So he uses that kind of mini parable there to explain why his disciples are not fasting, whereas the uh, disciples of the Pharisees and the, uh, John the Baptist were fasting. So while I'm with them, they're not going to fast. They'll be fasting later on. And then in Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a wedding banquet that a king holds for his son. So it's a great image of these important matters. And the comparison of the kingdom of heaven to a wedding celebration brims with potential. It can talk about our intimate relationship with God and Jesus, his commitment to us as his bride, 
the joyful prospect of the wedding celebration, the consummation of all things. So it's a, it's a very uh, rich image. Now, what do you make, friends, of the fact that in some of the images, we're the bride, but here in, in Matthew 25, we're the bridesmaids? Uh, the answer is nothing. You make nothing of that because uh, <laughs> metaphors are flexible vehicles of interpretation. So don't get uh, worried about that. Now, Jesus' focus in his image, in his use of the, this familiar image in Matthew 25 is on the two groups that we're going to call the bridesmaids, one which performs their task successfully and one which uh, fails miserably. So what then does Jesus do with the comparison of the kingdom of heaven to a wedding procession? In my view, he makes three points. First, like the bridegroom, Jesus' coming might take longer than we expect. See verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And uh, uh, that's uh, an important point because the same thing is taught elsewhere in the New Testament. In Matthew, it's, uh, there's another parable which says, actually in the previous chapter, the wicked servant, this isn't a marriage one, it's a master and servant one, the wicked servant says, uh, my master is staying away a long time. So I'm not going to bother too much about doing things in his absence. But then there's a warning, the master of that servant will come when he does not expect him. So the Bible does teach that uh, Jesus is coming. There's a certainty about it, but there's uh, also a sense in which we don't know when it will happen. And speaking uh, personally, I, I find it one of the more awkward doctrines of the Christian faith. It's not the one I'd bring up um, immediately in a conversation uh, with a friend who's not a believer. There's been terrible damage done to Christian witness over the decades and centuries by a sensationalist approach to these things, a really simplistic approach, a caricature of Jesus coming in some fashion. Um, uh, the late great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, the Left Behind series, which was uh, distinctive partly because it was really one book made into seven with very large print, <laughs> um, has done enormous damage in my view to the notion that Jesus will come again to bring about the new heavens and the new earth and all things to consummation. Um, anyone been to Balmoral Beach in Sydney? Yeah? There used to be a grandstand there built in 1923-24. It's a little bit ambiguous as to what the purpose was, but apparently some people think it was built for the second coming of Christ. Christ was going to walk through the Sydney Harbour Heads um, I don't know, along the Yarra River would have been just as, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Through the Sydney Harbour Heads, walking on the water, and people get a good view. That was uh, what was put up. And, and you chuckle, and that's, you know, the chuckles from us turn out to be sneers from everyone else when thinking about the second coming of Christ. But the truth is, scepticism about the return of Christ was alive in the first century. 2 Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord... A day is like a thousand years. It's only been a couple of days since Jesus left. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's a sign of his mercy to us that he hasn't returned. And we need to take very seriously the return of Christ. Not be embarrassed about it, but uh, speak about it in an informed manner. But more importantly, according to this passage, we're to live in a manner that is prepared and ready for 
the return of Christ. Remembering Christ's coming and his destiny defines our own identity now. Uh, because when he is revealed as the Son of God, we'll be revealed also as sons and daughters of God. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of the great lines is, we do this until he comes. So what difference does it make whether or not we remember Christ's return? The answer is, it makes a world of difference. And the second thing the parable teaches us is that like the wise bridesmaids, we must be ready for such a delay. I uh, wonder how many of you have been in a wedding party as a bridesmaid or a groomsman or a best man. It, it really is an honour, isn't it? But there's a bit of pressure there, isn't there? You get to do just a, a few small things, but you don't want to kind of mess them up. And that's, that's what's happening with these bridesmaids. Maybe it's just handing over the ring in our day or straightening the train of the bride, but you want to get it right. You want to tread on the train of the bride. That wouldn't be too good. Uh, verse 4 says, The wise ones took oil in their jars along with their lamps. Um, so they were prepared for the coming of the uh, groom. Uh, we're to make preparations now, to be prepared, to live in a way that the coming of the bridegroom will not be a surprise to us. Now, there are such things as wedding stuff-ups, which is what we're looking at here, yep. Um, and there are such things as wedding hiccups. Yep. So I thought I'd have a quick game to see what you say. So I'll tell you a, uh, uh, something that happened at a wedding. These are true stories. You tell me whether it's a hiccup or a stuff-up. Okay, so let's try it. Uh, three people, the bride, the groom, and the priest, standing on the edge of a swimming pool. Saw this on video. They all fall in the water. Stuff-up or hiccup? Stuff That's a stuff-up. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Okay, how about this one? I, Diana, take you, Philip, Charles, Arthur, George. Okay, is that a, because you got the name, it should have been I, Diana, take you, Charles, Philip, Arthur, George. Um, stuff up or hiccup? Hiccup. Okay, try this one. I, Michael, take you, Alexandra, to be my lawfully wedded husband. <laughs> Stuff up or hiccup? It's just a hiccup. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. And the minister was holding the wrong vows, okay? Um, the bridesmaids running out of oil in their lamp. That's a stuff up. Yeah, that's a stuff up. Because they were there to bring honour to the bride and groom. And they messed it up. Terrible thing. Oops. Hiccup. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Verse 13 is the point. Keep watch because you do not know the hour or the day. Now, what does it mean to keep watch? And what does it mean to have sufficient oil? That's the problem with these parables. They're kind of flexible in the extreme. Um, some of the commentaries will tell you the oil represents good works, faith, grace, love, the Holy Spirit. Yep. So that's what you need 
to be prepared for the second coming of Christ. They're right, that it is what you need, but it's not what the passage is teaching, I don't think. The parable's not an allegory. There's not an, a kind of one-to-one correspondence between all the elements in the parable with things in, in reality. It's not like the number 10 is particularly significant or the fact that they're virgins, the fact that they fell asleep, the fact that some of them are trying to buy oil when the shops were shut. Um, these are just elements of the story that add colour, make it memorable. Yep, because a, a parable is an extended metaphor which says something using um, a familiar image, memorably with feeling. Now, I think sufficient oil simply means being ready for his coming. Having enough oil signifies being prepared. Now, living in a way that anticipates the second coming. Now, some Christians would think, well, what that means is I should just concentrate on gospel work. Yep. I shouldn't play table tennis. It's a waste of time. Um, I, shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't clean the house and get someone else to do that. I should be involved in teaching people, preaching the gospel. I don't think that's what it's saying. I mean, that's just a horrible, um, uh, almost docetic view of our world where God the creator means nothing and the fact that Jesus was raised bodily is not taken seriously because that was the yes to God's creation. No, I think to keep watch is to be ready for the coming kingdom and that lives with the kingdom values now. It's to live as people of the coming king. So to recall right back at the beginning of our semester, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, who preached that one? I think it was Bird, wasn't it? Yep, Michael Bird. My little summary would be, uh, oil in our lamps means to put away anger, violence, lust, hypocrisy, Pride, greed, self-assertion, self-preservation, to love our enemies, to keep our promises, to forgive freely. That's the kingdom lifestyle that Jesus laid out in chapters 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus uses wonderfully memorable images to characterise our whole life before him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, build on the rock. Yep, another beautiful image and a memorable one. Here he says, live in preparation for my coming, that you might bring honour to me when I come. And that's what we forget. The second coming is not really about us. It's about the vindication of God's Son. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is who he really is, the Lord of all. So to keep watch is not to fool yourself into thinking, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, I'll put off that giving um, I... Uh, said I would do, or I'll, I'll start a vibrant prayer life when I get a, you know when when I get past the exams, or I'll meet with someone from church who's uh, struggling in some area to give them some encouragement. Because as uh, another scripture says, today is the day of salvation. So this parable encourages us, friends, not to be self-deceived, not to put off our obedience. We have to live now in the light of that certain future. Living in the light of the end um, will lead to great joy. And that's what we see in verse 10. See verse 10? Um, the virgins who were ready went out to meet the bridegroom. Loaded words, and that, that's a beautiful moment. And anyone in the first century would have recognised the joy and wonder of that celebratory moment. So if the virgins who were wise experience honour and joy, 
of playing their part. The foolish virgins have a very different perspective. And the parable actually says more about the foolish virgins as a warning than it does about the wise virgins. See verse 6. At midnight the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some oil. Our lamps are running out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us instead. Go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they're on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. Terrible moment. They'd missed their opportunity. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later the others also came, knocked on the door. Lord, Lord, they said. Recalling, I think, Matthew 7. Remember the Lord, Lord, some, some will call me Lord. Open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. So the third point of the parable is that unlike the foolish bridesmaids, we're not to live unprepared for the bridegroom's coming. The day of the wedding for the foolish virgins is not one of great joy, but rather one of terrible, terrible regret. It's too late to buy more oil. They've spoilt the wedding. Instead of lighting the way uh, with ten virgins, there's only five. And uh, uh, four weddings and a funeral. I saw it a long time ago, but I think there's a potential spoiling of the wedding right at the beginning, where there's quite a few uh, <coughs> words at the beginning about the fact they wake up late and they won't be able to get there on time. So I think we, we share that this is very clear to us too. I mean, the thought of not arriving on time if you're in the wedding party would be a terrible thing. So what's at stake, friends, is honour on the biggest day of someone's life to that point and the shame of ruining it. The door was shut. They miss out. They are excluded. And the bridegroom says, truly I tell you, I don't know you. So friends, when the day of the Lord Jesus arrives, do you want to honour him and share in his glory? Uh, a parable is an extended metaphor that uses a familiar image to say something memorably with feeling. That's a great example, I think. Uh, Jesus could have said, live in the light of, the of my certain coming in a manner that indicates your preparedness for that joyful day and to give me honour, which is my due. It's not very memorable, is it? Instead, he said in verse 10, the virgins who were ready went out with him to the wedding banquet um, Oh, sorry, uh, with him to the and the door was shut. So a day is coming that will mean much to our Lord Jesus. Verse 13, we should keep watch because we do not know the day or the hour. The key thing with Christ's return is not the timing. It's the character of that event and our part in that event and how we live in the meantime. Jesus will come as a bridegroom. There's another text in the New Testament that combines the kingdom of heaven and God's eternal reign to the marriage supper of God's son uh, in Revelation 19. In that case, we end up being the bride rather than the bride, uh, bridesmaids. Um, but the lesson of being ready for that glorious day is the same. And I close with it, uh, Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, 
for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear.